in a way that is accurate and clear. Thank you again for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of tonight's message, like I said, is The Goodness of God. The Goodness of God. As you think about things that are good or wonderful or excellent, you also can think about the fact that as you think about things that are good, there are also many things in life that are not good. And as you're thinking about how much good or what good there is in your life, oftentimes you might struggle to identify, well, what's so good about my circumstances? What's so good about what I'm going through? I'm going through a very difficult time in my life. And as I've quoted many times before, a a song that I used to play on guitar, you know, ages ago, was a song called Life Ain't Always Beautiful. Sometimes it says, the song said, sometimes it's just plain hard. And so I quote that from time to time because the reality is it's true. God never promised us that life would be easy. He said in this life you'll have hard things, you'll have trials, you'll have tribulations. There's suffering in this life. He says, in the face of all that, there's much that you could celebrate. There's plenty of blessings and goodness uh, to go along with it, but life itself can be challenging and hard at times. God promised that. And it's because we live in a world that is tainted. You think of, as you think about life ain't always beautiful, there's many things you probably could think of in terms of examples of things that are just plain evil or suffering that goes on or brokenness that you've experienced in yourself or others that you're living in close close proximity to. You can think of many things that are painful, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, financial pain, relational pain. As you have relationships break up, you have people turn away from you, you have people that you lose contact with. There's pain associated with many different facets and aspects of life. And there are they're all, all of those things, suffering, evil, brokenness, pain, they are the product of sin and Satan. Between the two, that's where those things originate. Every part of creation is tainted and affected by both the curse of sin, individual personal sin, and then the chief of all lies, Satan himself, the father of this world, the deceiver, the one who is seeking to corrupt and to tear down and to break down and to oppose all that is good because he's opposed to the one who is good, which is God. And that's the world system of thinking and behavior and values that we're living in is a system that exalts the opposition to rebelling against the rejection of God. And so with that comes brokenness, comes evil, comes suffering, comes pain. And so life ain't always beautiful. But as you think about all of that's wrong and all of that is tainted. There's only one source of hope amidst the pervasive darkness and the raging storms that are common in life. There's plenty of things that are, are dark. There are plenty, plenty of things that are not good and are not beautiful. But there is one bright, shining source of hope amidst all of that, and that's the goodness of God. Many of you are familiar with the very popular saying, although we don't practically apply it, and many of the people saying it haven't actually put their faith in God's provision to deal with their sinfulness, so they're not even God's children in that sense, but a popular phrase amongst Christians that developed over time, it's not a new phrase, but it's God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Some of you beat me to it, I could see you mouthing it out there, that's good. All the time God is good. So God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. It's a fixed truth because it's part of God's very character that He's good. And so if God can't change and God's character is such that He is good, then He's good all of the time. There's nothing that can change that about Him because He's immutable. And as you think about God's goodness, because God is good all of the time and because God loves His children, then he pours his goodness into their lives in many ways. Just follow the chain of logic there. God's character is that he's good. It's a fixed fact, and he never changes. We also know that as a fixed fact that God is love and that God loves us. God loves you. So if God is good all of the time, he's, it's a part of his attributes that he's overflowing with in, in his very character, and he loves you, then naturally that goodness spills over. He pours out that goodness into your life in more ways than you can imagine, more ways than you can think of all at once, in many ways that you often take for granted and forget. 
You know, one of you and I was talking to me before the service, we were just mentioning how easy it is to take things for granted and to think nothing of it. But it's really just a small part of goodness, something that is very wonderful that you've been experiencing for a long time, and now you don't have the ability to do that. So now you see how blessed I was to just have that one ability, that one small thing. And there's many different facets to it that you're overlooking in terms of all the blessings and the goodness that God is pouring into your life. And as you think about the way that God expresses his goodness or pours that into, into your life, he expresses that goodness through his complete care and provision for you. Remembering that God has undertaken due to his love for you to provide all that you need. But my God shall supply all your need according to his what? Riches, his abundance his abundant wealth. As his child, you're an inherit, you have an inheritance. You've gotten in on it. You're now an heir to his abundant riches, and that, that richness is poured out in your life in terms of God's goodness that's directed to you. And you think about that, how God expresses that goodness, his goodness and his love for us by pouring that goodness into his complete care and provision for us so that we lack nothing as we've said over and over again since we've talked on Psalm 23, we taught that series through it, but one of the takeaways from that, we keep coming back to that Psalm 23 verse 1, which should be an anthem for your life. That because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or remember as we noted in the NIV, I lack nothing. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. That's just an expression of God's complete care and provision for us as his child. Why though? Because it's a reflection of his goodness being poured out into our lives by a God who is good. And as you see God faithfully undertake in your life, that should cause you to trust him. As you think about the goodness of God, one of the byproducts of seeing his goodness in, his li- in your life, seeing his complete care, seeing his provision for you, seeing his faithfulness, it should be that you trust him. You see, here's a faithful God that's worthy of my confidence. He's worthy of my faith. And knowing that God is on your side, it should fill you with that confidence. It should fill you with that hope. It should fill you with strength in the face of life's trials, regardless of what they are that you're going through. And as you think about Great is Thy Faithfulness, a song on the the faith, one of the lines in that song says, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow comes from knowing that God loves me, God is good, God is for me, and he's pouring out that goodness into my life in a way that is absolutely complete and lacking nothing. Doesn't that get me to say, great is thy faithfulness, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So as you think about these psalms where we've been doing this series on insights and psalms, in Psalm 27, David expresses this kind of confident faith in the Lord, but it comes back to a confident faith being based on the knowledge that God loves him and that is God's goodness, God is good, and that God's goodness is being poured into his life. So let's take a look at Psalm 27 here tonight. We start with a section, and this could have been the focus of our message because it's certainly a pretty predominant theme, but I don't think it's the theme. But the first section here deals with Whom Shall I Fear? Another song that we've had as a song of the month here at church, Whom Shall I Fear? This is one of many places that that lyric comes from. Whom shall I fear? If I know my God and I know he's on my side, whom shall I fear? Is anything too big for our God? Is anything too much for God to handle? Is anything too strong for God? Is anything too scary for God? Is anything too overwhelming for God? No, all of these things make us scared. They make us overwhelmed. They, they make us fear, but not God, because nothing is too big for him. So that could have been our title, Whom Shall I Fear? Let's look at these first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. 
Whom shall I fear? Now you could start each of these statements of fact. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And the second statement, the Lord is the strength of my life with the word because. Because the Lord is my light and my salvation, then the natural question that flows from that statement of fact is, whom shall I fear if God is that to me? Because the Lord is my strength, is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Natural question, again, that flows from that stated reality, that stated fact. And as you think about adversity, adversity comes in many different forms. So does opposition. You face opposition from all sides. And it, again, a lot of variation in it. But most prevalently, the attacks that you face in life come from other people. Now, there may be a satanic influence behind them. There may be the influence of the sin nature behind those attacks. But the attacks that you're facing, the difficulties and trials that you're facing are human-made in the form of other human beings and in the form of your own human choices. And so that's the adversity and opposition that we primarily face. It comes from, or at least the vehicle for that, even if it is, again, originating or influenced by some of those other things, the sin nature and Satan, it's ultimately people. So on one hand, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. On the other hand, most of the trials, tribulations, hardships, and difficulties that you're experiencing that have got you flummoxed here tonight, they're in the form of people. People that are creating challenges in your life or are being difficult or are the source of hardship that you're facing. And David makes that very clear that that's the case here in these first verses. Look at this. When you talk about the prevalent, that most prevalently the attacks that you face come from other people. Let's look at this language. When the wicked came against me, who is that wicked people? My enemies and my foes, who is he talking about? Human opposition. Though an army may encamp against me. An army of what? An army of people. Though war may rise against me. Involving what? Involving people. Human situations. On a human, on the, on a human planet created by God. That's what you're up against. And often, your emotional response to being attacked by people involves fear. You think of oftentimes or the emotions that are associated with being attacked, one of them is that is anger, but one of them is fear. That's a common or prevalent emotional response to being attacked by others. And you think about fear because he's talking about whom shall I fear or of whom shall I be afraid, Fear is the underlying issue. But fear in and of itself isn't bad. It's just one of many God-given emotions. Like oftentimes Christians have this sense from taking verses like God has not called us to a spirit of fear that to have any fear at any time is bad. But God created us with a wide spectrum of emotions. Fear is just one of them. Now, fear that is focused or fixated on Fear that is overwhelming or controlling you, that's what the Bible is speaking against. Fear actually is something God uses at times to protect you. Just think about just on a very base level, not in a deep emotional level, but on a very base level. There are certain things that young people would, well, old people too, it's, it's the fear of consequences that very often stop you from doing stupid things that would harm you. There's no nicer way to put that. You cannot, when you're a child or an adult, you cannot fly without an airplane or some kind of assistance. Had a recent reception for Erica and Drake. I was hearing some Westby stories. I'll throw them under the bus here. But Jody, who I've been close to since we were kids, Jason was sharing a story about how Jody jumped out of a tree with pine branches attached to his arms, thinking that he could fly because he saw it on a cartoon or something. Now he'll, he'll be mad at me for <laughs> sharing that. But without fear, and in that case, common sense, you're going to get hurt. You're not going to be able to fly. You think... At times, the things that stop you from getting hurt, though, a good amount of fear is sometimes very helpful. Anyway, I don't want to get 
weigh into that, but fear in and of itself, again, it's just a part of this range of God-given emotions. The issue is having that fear overwhelm or control you, living in fear, continuing in fear. That's the problem. And as you think about fear, fear is directly associated with your perception of the size or degree of the threat. So the amount of fear that you have, we're talking about proportional here, the amount of fear that you have, it's proportional or associated with what you perceive the size or degree of the threat that you face. And again, in the context here, we're primarily talking about attacks in opposition from human beings. So as you go about life and you face various attacks and oppositions, the amount of fear that you'd be prone to have would be commensurate with whatever degree of threat you perceive those people to be to you. And as you think about those threats bringing about or causing you to have fear, you think about the solution to that. And as David lays out here in the psalm, the solution is that when you focus on the size of your God, that reduces the size of the threat. So if threats or the size of the threat or your perception of that is what's bringing about the fear in your life, you're not going to have that if the threat all of a sudden becomes non-existent because you're comparing the size of that threat or that conflict that you're facing or opposition you're facing to the size of your God. And the size of your God is always much bigger than the size of anything else that you're facing by way of problems or troubles or tribulations in life. So whatever it is that you're facing, the opposition, the adversaries, God is much, much bigger. He's infinitely bigger, in fact. And so that is what ultimately helps David to have this comprehension that no matter what I'm facing, and it seems like it's some really major things here in his life. Remembering he wasn't living in the time we're living in. He was living in a far more violent time than, than what we face. And I, I mean that more, there's lots, perhaps even equal amounts of violence, but culturally there's a better handle on some of it anyway than in his time where might makes right. That's basically what it came down to. The strongest country, the strongest nation wins. And in some extent, that's still true today, but there's at least a fiction of civilization to the amount of that kind of thing that is going on in terms of those actual threats or those actual attacks in terms of warfare that's going on. We're not in a constant state of that in terms of where we live. Now, in other places, that may be true, but we've been blessed to have a relative amount of peace as you think about a generic sense of peace versus war and conflict as it relates to our home communities that we live in. But as you're thinking about David's life, he's saying, I'm facing some pretty big things, but because the Lord is the strength of my life and because the Lord is my light and my salvation, then I don't have to have any fear. I don't need to be afraid. And so you see those are the two phrases that describe David's mentality as he reduces the size of the threat by increasing or fixating and meditating on the size of his God. So look at the first one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The first part of that, the light, God eliminates or dispels any darkness. So when you're facing darkness in your life, are you thinking and mindful of this idea that the Lord is my light? And the second part of that is the Lord is my salvation. God rescues from any danger and he provides victory. Not just rescue, but victory in terms of the opposition that we're facing. Now, does God promise that he'll provide a physical rescue and a physical victory as you would perceive things or human beings would perceive things? No, but he promises to give you spiritual victory in the face of whatever opposition or adversity you're facing in life when you recognize how big he is, how good he is, how strong he is, how powerful and able he is to undertake in your situation. Now you see the second phrase here, the Lord is the strength of my life. God protects like a fortress, preserving my life. That's what that word, the strength, it refers to a fortress or a stronghold that God is. God provides that shelter to us, and he provides us then with that strength of preserving life. God protects like a fortress that preserves my life. And as I meditate on God eliminating or dispelling darkness, God rescuing from any danger and providing victory, God protecting like a fortress and preserving my life, I can have no fear. Whom, whom shall I be afraid of? Whom shall I fear 
if God is able and God is doing that in my life, undertaking for that in my life. You see, David comes to that conclusion. He has no fear when, but when and only when, he focuses on the strength of his God. Does that mean David never had fear? No, he has fear. At times he expresses them in Psalms that we've already looked at coming up to this point where he talks about his enemies. He talks about the plight that he faces. He talks about the hole that he's in. He experiences dread and fear but not when he's thinking about and comparing the size of his adversity to the size of his God. So you see those phrases, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? He says, my heart shall not fear. And he ends with this kind of ultimate statement or summary of that where he says, he uses this as his culminating example in this section where he says, though war may rise against me, even if war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. And that word confident there, other versions have, though war may rise against me, I will still trust God or I will still feel secure. That's the idea of confidence there. Even though a war may be rising against me, I will still feel secure. How many of you are facing a literal, actual war rising against you in your hometown, your home area? And the answer is none of you. Not, not a war like David's talking about where a physical army is seeking to take his physical life, take possession of his physical possessions, is attacking with a desire to eliminate and wipe him out along with all of God's people, the nation of Israel, under constant, near constant attack, though they did experience some periods of peace. And David's saying in the face of that, even if that were the case and it's not, God is bigger. God is bigger than that so you don't have to have any fear regardless of what your version of that war would be like in your heart, in your life. Whatever your version of that adversity, trouble, opposition that you're facing, God's bigger. And that's ultimately the takeaway that David has here. Then he moves on to the section that says there's one thing that's worth desiring. There's one thing worth desiring. Let's read verses 4 through 6. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord." So one thing I have desired of the Lord. There's one thing that I will seek. He sort of repeats himself there in terms of he's desired this and now he has a mentality that he wants to seek after. But both both referring back to the one thing. One thing I have desired and one thing will I seek. And it communicates a single-minded longing or pursuit on David's part. And as you think about having single-mindedness, the Bible talks about having steadfastness, being unmovable, unmovable, being unshaken. The reason the Bible talks about wanting to have steadfastness and being unshakable, unmovable, is because we're prone to that. Very few people have that kind of focus when you talk about having a single-minded pursuit or having a single-minded desire, at least in a sustained way. You, You could have it at times. I would say I'm even guilty of that in terms of my personality lends itself to fixating on certain things, but it never lasts. God wants us to be fixated on Him. David is communicating that there's one thing worth desiring, and that's the Lord. There's one thing worth seeking, and that's the Lord. To have that steadfastness and not be shaken from that perspective and that priority, putting that first. Another song we been singing at the we sang it at senior camp, probably sing it at these other camps, but it's called First Things First. It, it's, a, it's about perspective. It's not that other things don't have importance. It's about putting God in His proper exalted place of preeminence in your thinking and in your life. That's the idea. That's the focus. And David has that desire, whether he, he's not saying he follows through with that all the time, but that's his heart's desire that he communicates here. 
Now, when you think about what is that one thing that's worth desiring or worth seeking, and he says that in the first part of verse 4 here, he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, what, ultimate, what immediately comes to your mind as you hear that phrase, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What psalm comes to your mind? Again, Psalm 23. How does it end? With verse 6 that says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's his stated desire. Here he's repeating it. We're just four psalms later in Psalm 27. This desire and this pursuit, seeking after this, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, this simply refers to constantly living life in God's presence. Now, when we hear that in Psalm 23, verse 6, and we hear that last word forever, we extend that beyond this life into all of eternity. That confident expectation that the man or woman of faith has that this time in this life that I get to spend with the Lord is but a vapor that's here for a moment and then passes quickly away. It's a, it's a blink of an eye that I have to live in this life. So in that context, another sideline here, in that context, any trial or trouble, persecution, affliction, opposition that I'm facing, it's brief and it's fleeting. In light of eternity, that would be true of everything. Now, does that diminish the difficulty of what you're facing right now? No, but does it give some context to it? The answer is it should. This life is here today and gone tomorrow. It's short and it's brief. Therefore, the trials and the suffering and the difficulty is temporary. It will not last forever. So the time that, then if you think on the positive side of that, the time that I get to spend with the Lord in fellowship and in union, walking and talking with Him, having a walk of faith in this spectrum, in this life, here in the temporal realm, it's fleeting. That's why it's choose you this day whom you will serve. We don't have time to waste. The time that you get to live with God, walk with God, talk with God, trust God, depend on God, it's small. It's short. You, you can't say, I will live for the Lord when I'm older. Some of you youngsters, do you know what song I'm talking about? You sing it in some of your young people's gatherings? I don't have to wait until I'm grown up to be what Jesus wants me to be. Show of hands, kids, if you've, if you've ever heard that before in your life. Okay, a couple. I maybe didn't sing it quite right, but it used to be a song. Somebody, somebody get Sunday school teachers, if you're here, anyone involved in that, let's dig that song out and let's get the kids to sing that one. I don't have to wait you can't, you can't afford to wait, youngsters. Too many of us did that. Too many of us do that. We're waiting for something to happen before we're going to live for the Lord, before we're going to enjoy the Lord, before we're going to walk and talk with the Lord, before we're going to involve Him in our life. There's no time to waste. And sometimes you think, well, so what if I do that in this life? I've got all of eternity to look forward to. So that's the flip side of it. That's foolish thinking. God gave you the, the biggest treasure he gave you in this life is the time that he gave you to live for him. And the impact of serving him cannot be quantified. You have no way to know that. You, you, you wouldn't have the faintest idea of just how much God could use your willingness to serve him. Some of you are here tonight and you're here as youngsters. You're here because you have to be here. Your mom and dad said, we, our family, We'll be at church. We're going to prioritize hearing God's word taught when it's taught, period. That's going to be a priority for our family. That's to end that choose you this day whom you will serve. Josh was talking about this, and how does he end that? But as for what? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so maybe that's why you're here, young person. But you don't have any time to waste and you have no idea how God could use your soft heart, your willingness to respond to Him and be used by Him. 
Just do some basic math, some simple math. If you were to share the gospel, let's just say, with five people every single year who would respond to the message of hope. So that would mean you'd have to talk to more than five. Let's just say that five would respond to the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, and rose again. Five people. And let's say you're 10 years old tonight. Let's say the average lifespan is four, what is it, four score and 10, which is 80 years, right? 90 years, 70 years. What is it? Three score and 10, 70 years. By virtue of strength, four score gets us to 80. Now I got the math right. But 10 years old now, you got 80 years by virtue of strength. 70 more years. 70 times five, what is that, 350? Am I getting the math right there? 350 people. Let's say they did the same. Let's say each of those people did the same. It doesn't take much. You don't have to be a math genius. Obviously, I'm not. Do that math. Your five turns into 350, 350 times five, on and on you go. Within just a few levels, you're at thousands of people, then millions, then billions of people that could have, could have heard and responded to the message of Jesus Christ. You're not just an inconsequential cog in this young person. Old people, you're not an inconsequential cog in this. God wants to use every moment of our lives in a way that can glorify himself and can shine his light into the darkness. But it takes a willingness to be used of him. It takes an attitude that says there's one thing worth desiring. There's one thing that is worth seeking. So it refers to this idea of that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that the idea is that I would constantly live life in God's presence. This desire to constantly reside with the Lord. And it's very similar to what Jesus calls for with his use of the word abide in John chapter 15. Now that word, it literally means to dwell. So you have the same word there, that I might dwell with him. He says, dwell in me, abide in me, John 15, 4. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it dwells in the vine, abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide, dwell in me. David says, that's my mentality. I want to dwell in God's presence. I want to live life and continually reside with the Lord all the days of my life, not just some of them. I want to redeem all of the time that God has given me. Now, is this the one thing you desire? Is this the one thing that you seek? And the answer is no. When you're not looking to the Lord, absolutely that is not true. When you are, when you have the right perspective and the right focus, that's something God can use. Do you pray for this? Do you say, Lord, help me? Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help my unfaithfulness. Lord, help me to have the desires of my heart be the desires of your heart. Lord, help me to want to dwell continually with you all the days of my life. Give me that desire, Lord. Now, what else does dwelling with the Lord involve? So that's the general idea. That's the focus of David's life and desire, that that's what he wants to be true of himself. But what else does it involve? If you're dwelling with somebody, if you're constantly in God's presence, look at the second part of verse 4. It says, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, to behold the beauty of the Lord, the focus here is on comprehending how wonderful God is. Another translation has to look at with awe. To look at God with awe. And the word translated beauty, this is the only time in the Old Testament it's ever translated beauty. It normally means grace, favor, kindness, and goodness. To look at with awe God's grace, favor, kindness, and goodness, to comprehend that is the idea. That I would comprehend or behold God's grace, favor, kindness, and goodness. Back to our title, the goodness of God, that I would see that. And this comprehension 
It comes from experiential observation. He's saying to comprehend this by dwelling with God. As I'm living life with God, as I'm remaining in God's presence, then I'm going to taste and see. I'm going to experience. I'm going to observe this through experience. God's goodness, His favor, His grace, His kindness, His love. I'm going to experience that because I'm staying connected to Him. And to inquire in His temple is just an extension of that. Being in awe of God. Seeing how wonderful He is. To inquire in His temple just means to ask God for guidance in every situation. He's saying, I want this to be true of me all the days of my life that I would inquire in His temple. But I would ask God for guidance. That's what it means to inquire. To come to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to guide and direct in our lives. That's why when you think about our steps and our paths, the one who takes delights in the law of the Lord because he delights in the law, that person doesn't walk in the way of the scornful or walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. That person is focused on trusting the Lord with all his heart and leaning not on his own understanding and in all his ways acknowledging God so that he can direct his paths. That's what it means to ask God for guidance in every situation or to inquire in his temple. Now, why would I prioritize that above all else? Dwelling in the house of the Lord, residing constantly, living life in God's presence. Why would somebody, a man or woman of faith, why would they prioritize that above all else? Why would, they, why would David say, that's the one thing I desire, that's the one thing that I seek. Well, we see that in verses 5 through the first part of 6. He says, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Now, I'm skipping to the, the good bits there in a sense of in between that. He's talking about some of the sort of the specific things that are going on, but God is going to be present and helping, a very present help in time of trouble. He's going to hide me. He's going to set me high on a solid place, on a rock. My head is going to be lifted up above all my enemies all around me. He's going to give me salvation and victory as it relates to the trials and difficulties and troubles that I'm facing now. Again, does God promise that that's going to be physical victory? Well, not, definitely not to us. In David's life, perhaps, in the sense that God said, I'm going to provide physical prosperity and blessing under the Mosaic covenant that I've made with you as a part of the nation of Israel. If you'll obey me, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me. He directly connected the qualities of their physical life with their willingness to trust him. So is there a sense that are there times where you can even read about how physical victory over enemies in battles was provided when the nation would turn to the Lord in faith? The answer is yes, many of them. Are there times where they lost battles because they weren't trusting God? Yes. If you don't heed my word, if you don't trust me, if you won't look to me, then you're not going to be successful. Your path is not going to be prosperous. And he's talking in the, under the context of the law, the Mosaic law, that, that was true. But in our lives, that's not what he's promising. He's promising, though, that when we look to the Lord, that the value of that is going to be that we are going to have spiritual victory. We're going to have stability. We're going to be able to be hidden and protected by God in terms of in the spiritual realm. God alone is able to undertake to provide salvation, protection, and direction is the sort of other takeaway here. As you think about God, He's the one who can provide. We're not going to be in a place where being on our own or trying to live life or withstand the opposition on our own, we're going to have success. God is the one who can undertake to provide that. And you think about helplessness naturally causes fear. Without God, without God on your side, you should be afraid to face life's giants. If you're going to try to face things that are overwhelming odds and you don't have God on your side, guess what? You're going to get crushed like a bug. How do you think David would have fared 
against Goliath. We're talking about an actual example. How would David have fared against Goliath without God on his side? Now, the human realm, it wouldn't have turned out the way it did. It's because David was confident that God would fight for him, that God would work through him, that God would embolden him, God would give him courage, God would give him strength, God would give him the victory, and he was absolutely firm and fixed in his belief and his understanding, his conviction about that. But naturally what happens when a a normal-sized man takes on a giant I mean, if you actually ever see, you should Google this. I don't necessarily recommend that as part of my everyday sermon that we spend a lot of time on Google, but you should Google just illustrations that show the difference in size of Goliath, his estimated size as recorded in the pages of Scripture compared to a normal-sized David, and you should see the pictures of them side by side. It gives you a whole other appreciation for what normally would have happened in those circumstances and why everybody was quaking in their boots when they were looking at it from a human perspective instead of, God is on my side, of whom shall I be afraid? Because God is on my side, whom shall I fear? See, the Goliaths in life, they naturally squash you if you're trying to face them on your own. But you're not facing them on your own. You have God on your side. Reminded me of Exodus chapter 14. Let's turn there to get a little bit of page turning. Exodus 14, famous passage. This is nothing that's going to be shocking or new to you. Verse 13, we're going to pick up. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Now, this is the part you're familiar with. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see no more, see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. King James, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now compare that. We were looking earlier, thinking about John 14, sorry, John 15, verse 4. Compare that to John 15, verse 5, where Jesus ends verse 5 by saying, for without me you can do nothing. See, David understands this. As I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, And I comprehend with awe God's grace, favor, kindness, and goodness, and I experience that. Then it's going to give me this salvation or this rescue, this strength to deal with the times of trouble in my life, the protection and provision that I need, the salvation that I'm looking for, the the direction that I need to guide my paths. God is going to do this. And so as I think about without God, I can do nothing. I'm left in fear. Instead of fearing not and standing still and seeing God's salvation as he fights for me, I'm left quaking in my boots like the rest of the nation of Israel was to face Goliath. Now, what should my response be to God's goodness and care if I'm standing in awe of God's grace, favor, kindness, and goodness that has been bestowed on me as I'm dwelling in his house and seeking his presence and wanting to live life with him, what should my response be to seeing his complete care and provision, his salvation, protection, and direction for me? Well, we see the end of verse 6. Therefore, in light of all of this, I offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. I will sing of the goodness of God like the song I sang tonight. Like Psalm 34, 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Your praise shall or will ever be on my lips. Is that what's on your lips? It would be if you see how awesome and wonderful and gracious your God is, how much He's provided for you, how much He has undertaken in your life. 
how much he's blessed you. Now we get to verses 7 through 10. David now changes gears here a little bit, and he says, the Lord never forsakes. Even though I feel that way at times, he never forsakes. Let's look at verse 7. Do not remember, oh, wrong chapter. Need to change the page. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. So we may boldly say, the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. The idea is the Lord never forsakes. Now, back to the first part of this, though. It's perfectly normal to feel anxious about God's presence or lack thereof. To wonder where God is or if he's listening in some present trial that you're facing. That is common. David was experiencing that. Here, it's expressed by the way he talks about hero, Lord, as if he's not sure. He's saying, have mercy on me as if he's not sure. Do not hide your face from me as if he might. Do not turn your servant away in anger as if he might. Do not leave me nor forsake me as if God might. That's normal. It's common to man. But you see, it's normally associated with shifting your focus to the horizontal plane. You're not normally having that anxiety or being anxious about God forsaking you. If you're fixed on him, if you're firm and steadfast and unmoving in your occupation with him and your confidence that comes from looking at him, trusting him, being convinced or persuaded to walk by faith in him and his care and provision for you. But as you focus to the giants in your life, to the storms in your life, to the trials in your life, to the difficult people in your life, all of a sudden you might be tempted to wonder, where is God? I don't, feel, I don't feel His presence in what I'm going through. I feel alone. I feel rejected. I feel defeated. I feel forsaken. You see, believers today experience this even with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. David was not immune to those feelings. He experienced times when God's response seemed delayed. And that's what caused him to shift his focus. And it's funny because David felt doubt even while seemingly focused on the Lord. He says, you asked me, where is it? You said to me, seek my face. And my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. See, he had a mentality where he thought that was his Response. He thought he was trusting the Lord. See, David, he felt doubt even while seemingly focused on the Lord because just because he wanted that to be true doesn't mean it always was true in his life. But doubt, doubt is ultimately overcome by confidence in God's enduring faithfulness. And David gets to that place too. I love how he shows us the full spectrum or the full, the full movement the whole picture, how he goes from times where he has that uncertainty to times where he has this absolute confidence as he gets his gaze back on the Lord, as he remembers God's past faithfulness, as he thinks about God's character. Now what does he say? He says, you have been my help. So he remembers that. And so what is his conclusion in verse 10? Though all others may forsake me, and he happens to say, my father and my mother, that's the ultimate extreme of being forsaken, right? He says, though that may happen, though all others may forsake me, what does he say? The Lord will take care of me. But how did he come back to that place? Because he remembered that God has been a very present help in time of need in the past. He remembered that. But does that mean he was always confident, he's always sure of himself, never had any anxiousness about, where are you, God? I feel alone right now. But when you feel that way, how are you going to respond? I hope it's the way David did, by thinking back to God's past faithfulness. That's why in Deuteronomy, the advice to the nation of Israel was never forget. 
Never forget what God has done for you. And it spends the first many chapters there recalling God's past miracles and wonders and faithfulness and His provision and care for them each step of the way. Now, go back to those Red Sea moments. Go back to those Goliaths and giants in your life moments, David. Go back to the times where you were desperate and the boat felt like it was sinking. And the Savior spoke these words and said, Peace be still. Go back to those moments in your life where God has done that. And then remember, though all others forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Now, we come toward the end here where he talks about depending on the Lord. So we look at verses 11 through 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. That's a rocky road, as you're picturing that metaphor. To have enemies is to have bumps and rocks and boulders in the path. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence. There's violent people in his day. There are violent people in our day. There's slanderous, false-speaking people in our day, and there were in his day. There's people who believe or they're sincere in their perception of things, but it's not true, and that's how we're de- what we're dealing with in our day too. Now he says, I would have, this is a very important verse. This is, if you're going to take anything away from this message, go home and memorize this verse. David says, I would have la- lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's such a promise. And David ultimately comes back to that as he thinks about depending on the Lord and what causes him to do this. It's a belief that God is good all of the time. The goodness of God is what causes him to trust God. Reflecting on God's past provision and faithfulness causes him to depend on God. See, confidence, it produces dependence as you're confident in God. When he says, note the confidence that ends verse 10. Though all others may forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Now that confidence produces that dependence that he's not going to talk about. Trusting God is the critical component to any successful walk of faith. You will never walk by faith and lean not on your own understanding, your own strength. You're not going to do that unless you trust God to be infinitely more capable and better suited to lead and direct and provide for you than you could ever be for yourself. Unless you can take in the principle that says, for without me, you can do nothing. You can take that to the bank and say, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you, Lord, to undertake and work and direct in my life. And David learned that, to trust God. For me to be successful in this walk of faith, I have to trust God. And that means to completely depend on God in every facet of my life. Now look at these examples briefly. In verses 11 and 12, every facet of life, I'm going to learn to trust God. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. I need God to teach me. Lead me, he says, in a smooth path. Deliver me. He says, he says, do not deliver me to my enemies, which means he's saying, protect and deliver me. Don't deliver me to the violence of my enemies, to the false witnesses, to the adversaries. Protect and deliver me instead. Every facet of life, I'm going to trust you, God. Now, what would the alternative be? That's what's fascinating about verse 13, is what would the alternative be? I'm either going to trust God, I'm going to depend on God to teach, lead, and protect me, or what? Or I'm going to lose heart. That's the alternative. Deliver me, lead me, teach me, or I would have lost heart. Other translations, I would give up hope. I would lack assurance brought on by confidence in God's faithfulness. You see, life is absolutely overwhelming without the Lord. Think about what you're facing. Think about your adversity adversaries and adversities, I would have lost heart. I would give up hope. How many times have you done that? Because you're not thinking about the Lord. When you're hopeless, it's because you're not fixed on the goodness of God, the strength of God, the character of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the ability of God, the grace of God. You're not focused on God's love. You're focused on your trials and your circumstances and yourself. And you're not focused on Him. That's how you end up hopeless. Life is overwhelming. Again, back to our starting point, life ain't always beautiful. Sometimes it's just plain hard. 
Life can knock you down. It can break your heart. Is that true? It sure is true. And if I'm not focused on Him and His compassionate, loving care for me, I would have given up hope. I would have lost heart. But the key principle, the solution to every trial, to every worry, to every fear that you're facing is answered by this phrase, I would have lost hope, I would have lost heart if, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But for that, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living, I would be overwhelmed and hopeless. I would have lost heart. See, David believes that he will experience God's goodness throughout life. That's what it means in the land of the living, throughout this life. He knows that the goodness of God awaits him in the future, but he's focused on this life. And God's goodness is expressed in our life through fellowship that he sees fit to have with us. He wants to have that intimacy with us and to talk and walk with us, have live life with us. It's seen and expressed through his protection, through his guidance, through the victory, the salvation, the rescue that he provides that David talked about earlier in this very psalm. David's conviction was based on God's promises and God's faithfulness. The question, question is, are you presently believing in God's goodness? He says, and unless I believed, I had believed. Now he talked about, I've believed in the past, I need to believe that presently. Am I presently believing in God's goodness? Am I convinced that God is good, that he loves me, that he's for me, that he can undertake with any circumstance that I'm facing in this life? So he ends with sort of a summary of all of that by saying, if that's your perspective, then you're one who's going to learn to wait on the Lord to wait on the Lord. And the word, the Hebrew word that's translated as wait, it expresses an attitude of hope, expectation, and confidence. So the idea is find your hope in the Lord. The one who has seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living has a hope of the Lord as his guide, as his compass, as his source of stability, That's where he can have the confidence to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? If you believe in God's goodness and his complete care, you face adversity courageously. That's what you see here. When you're waiting on finding your hope or confidence in the Lord's provision, what does it say? That you can be of good courage. You can face adversity courageously, not because you're courageous, but because your hope is fixed in the right object. Your God who is bigger than anything that you're going through. God also provides strength as you meditate on his faithfulness, not on your own resourcefulness. When we have exhausted our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving has only begun. You're not going to ever find strength or be emboldened or courageous or strong because you're focused on your own resourcefulness in the face of trials and adversity and troubles that you're dealing with. You're going to find strength or receive God's strength, is a better way to put it, because you're focused on His faithfulness. So it says that to end our thing here, our psalm tonight. And He, when you're waiting on the Lord, finding your hope and confidence in Him, He's going to give us courage and he shall strengthen your heart. He shall strengthen your heart. See, the focus is all on him and what he does for us, not what you can do for yourself. It's him who provides that strength. It's him who provides that courage. So he ends again by repeating what he started in verse 14. Wait on the Lord and he ends by saying, wait. Hope in the Lord. Have your confidence in the Lord. So you think about our title here tonight, the goodness of God. God is good. Think about this sequence of statements now. God is good. That's a fact. It's a part of his character. God loves you. That's a fact. It's unchanging. Nothing can separate you from his love. God is for you. He's never against you. He, he is the one who goes in front of you. He wants to fight your battles. God will provide for you. A fixed fact. My God will supply 
These are all statements of fact. The question isn't, are they true? The question is, are you convinced? Are you persuaded? Have you believed you would see the goodness of God in your life? Have you believed that you would see the goodness of God in your life? You are experiencing God's goodness, but have you believed in it? Are you believing in it now that you would see the goodness of God in the land of the living? Are you believing that right this moment tonight in light of the trials and hardships and adversities that you're facing. Your faith should be this exuberant kind of faith and this confident faith that David expresses in this psalm. And it will be that way if your focus is on him. Do you see him for who he is? Who can stand against him? What trial is too big? Is there anything too big for our God? Are you seeking him though? Are you wanting to dwell continually continually with him? Is that the one thing that you're seeking after? Are you finding refuge in him? See, wait on the Lord and you will be encouraged. Trust the Lord. Find your hope and confidence in the Lord and you will be encouraged. Your heart will be strengthened. So back to our song, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God. May that be true of you. That's what God wants your life song to be. May that be true of me. May that corporately be true of this church that we are a living testimony that is singing to the goodness of our God in every facet of life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that it's goodness that is directed at us through grace, even though we don't deserve it, motivated by your love, which is infinite, and we can never be separated from. Pray that we would find confidence and hope in knowing who we are to you, who you are, and what you've done for us, and keeping our eyes fixed on you, that that would be our one desire, to live life every day of our life, all the days of our life with you in close proximity to you, seeking after you. May that be, may you convict our hearts if that's not our desire so that we could prayerfully ask you to make that our heart's desire.